You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Trinity Church Denver. To find out more about Trinity, visit our website, trinitychurchdenver.org. Our New Testament reading this morning is going to be Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. If you would please stand with me in reverence for the reading of God's word. When I finish each reading, I will say this is the word of the Lord and ask that you would respond with thanks be to God. So please hear now the New Testament reading, Romans 13, 1 through 7. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. This is the word of the Lord. And now turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 24. We're going to read the entire chapter. 1 Samuel 24. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all of Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way, where there was a cave. And Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face on the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand, for by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients says, Out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you. 
and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me, in that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me therefore by the Lord that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. Let's pray. Father, we come now to hear your word. I pray, God, that your spirit might take up that word and cause it to bear fruit. Uh, Bring us, Lord, to conviction for sin. Uh, Bring us, again, to see and delight in and love and desire righteousness. And to give thanks for your mercy and grace. In your name we pray, amen. So David has been on the run. Uh, But it's important to get our uh, heads around exactly where David is and um, perhaps a little bit of where David might be psychologically at this particular moment. Um, David has, uh, up until um, early on in 1 Samuel, been a shepherd, killing lions, which is fun, um, and bears, which is probably more fun, um, and otherwise protecting his sheep. Everything was just great. And then a man named Samuel showed up and anointed anointed David to be the next king of Israel, uh, bestowed upon him a a, a calling, um, which then seemed to accelerate as David found himself in Saul's court, um, a means of God's uh, kindness and mercy to Saul, uh, to calm Saul's spirit. Uh, He fights against the enemies of God and the enemies of Israel and defeats them, um, namely in the glorious story of David and Goliath. So seem, things seem to be really, really, really good. They seem to be going quite well. Um, the blessing of God is upon David. His spirit, the text tells us um, quite pointedly that the spirit of God rested upon David, came and blessed the work of David's hands. And then, despite the, the kindness of God, the blessing of God, the call of God on David's life, despite, perhaps even more pointedly, um, David's faithfulness and, and, and in service to Saul, both in playing music and fighting on, on behalf of Saul against Saul's enemies, um, Saul uh, grows with a great sense of envy. There's an awareness, even in the court of God, um, that, that Saul no longer possesses um, the Spirit of God, but David does. The irony in the midst of all of that is, um, had Saul not driven David from his court, the Spirit of God would have remained, did remain, up until that moment, did remain at least in Saul's house, in his court. But out of envy, out of strife, out of jealousy, he drives David from his court. And so David goes from being anointed with oil, um, the, the, the authority of God placed upon him, the Spirit of God given to him, Um, his faithful service to the king, um, all of that taking place. And he goes from that position to being on the run for his life, living in a cave with a bunch of hoodlums, um, 
simply outside, by all appearances, in exile from the blessing of God, from the throne of God, from all that God had promised him and given to him. And here is a man, an evil man named Saul, a, a tyrant, killing priests, slaughtering cities, in rebellion against the rule and the reign of God, chasing after one, his mo- one of his most loyal subjects and generals. So it's important that as we continue to work our, our way through 1 Samuel, as you consider where David is, that you keep all of that in mind. This isn't just a story in isolation from everything that's unfolded before it. David is in exile. David is on the run for his life. Saul is not just David's enemy, but Saul has made himself God's enemy. Saul is wicked. Saul is murderous. Saul is controlled and enslaved by envy. It's envy all the way through, such that it's directing, dictating to Saul his every action. So when you find now this odd story about someone going to the bathroom, (laughs) and David doesn't kill him, it needs to be loaded down with the weight of the previous narrative. So let's look now at the story. I want to draw your attention to a handful of things in the text. And then at least three things that I think we should learn from this story about the nature and the character of God and what it means to live faithfully in the face of our enemies. So uh, Saul gets word um, that David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. And so Saul takes 3,000 men. You should think about this for a second. He takes 3,000 men to go kill this one man. So this isn't like a small little, hey, I'm going to take 10 guys. We're going to go kill him. This is, no, we're going to get 3,000 men together. And we're going to all go out into the, into the desert um, to kill David. And we don't know much of what takes place there in the En Gedi, in the desert, um, except he's in front of the wild goat's rocks, uh, which is... Just where the goats are on the rocks. There's not a whole lot there, but rocks and goats. Um, while there, as often happens, unfortunately, when you go on a very, very long hike, you have to go to the bathroom. And I'm sorry, but it's in the text. So um, it says that he goes into a cave to relieve himself. Um, the ESV is giving us all kinds of, of nice language uh, for what the text actually says. Which essentially, uh, he went to a cave in order to cover his feet. Um, which is a nice way of saying he went into the cave and right then he just had his, he had his pants around his ankles. Um, and uh, he's there, extremely vulnerable, um, going to the bathroom there in the cave. The men of David, they're, they're watching this whole thing un, unfold. Um, they come to David and they say to him, here is the day of which the Lord said to you, behold, I will give your enemy into your hand and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Interesting that David's men here uh, quote a promise that's nowhere recorded in scripture um, maybe they made it up maybe they're trying to take some general themes from scripture and counsel David to do something um, that David uh, shouldn't do so David sneaks in stealthily cuts off a corner of Saul's robe doesn't kill Saul doesn't harm Saul doesn't attack the 3,000 men Saul's in an extremely vulnerable position as we can all relate to, and David doesn't kill him, but just 
cuts off the corner of the king's robe. It's important that we know what the king's robe means, what it symbolizes. The king's robe is not just like another piece of clothing, another garment. The king's robe symbolized the king's authority. The king's robe symbolized the king's office. So as David goes and cuts off the corner of Saul's robe, he cuts or harms or takes from Saul the symbol of Saul's own authority, his office as the anointed of God who is king. This was wrong. It was bad. It's better than killing him. The text makes it clear that David's conscience is torn over this. The text tells us that afterward David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And he turns to his men and he says, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him. In other words, to strike at the robe of the king was to strike at the king himself seeing that he is the Lord's anointed. Um, and then again, the ESV gives us a nice phrase instead of what the Hebrew indicates. It says, so David persuaded his men with these words. Um, the, the, the actual language in the original Hebrew is not persuade, but tear apart. Um, David actually goes after his own men here. Yells at them, tear, kind of tells them what's up and down. Um, and uh, they have a kind of a come to Jesus meeting before Jesus had come. Um, and uh, don't have a good meeting. Saul then leaves. The men don't strike at Saul, attack Saul. David doesn't kill Saul. And then we have David coming out from the cave and postures himself with a posture of repentance. Puts himself in a position of vulnerability. So here's, make sure you see it, an evil, objectively wicked and evil man, murderously evil man in a position of power and authority. David has an opportunity to kill him. He doesn't kill him. Instead, he just strikes at the symbol of his office. It's like a public dishonoring or insult. Repents of that, not by simply holding back his men from killing this tyrannically evil, murderous man, but actually goes out after him, after Saul leaves the cave, bows down on the ground and calls out to Saul. He holds up the evidence that he had an opportunity to kill Saul. says, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. In the face of Saul, in the face of this dishonorable man, he honors the office that this man holds, the authority that's been given to him by God. He bows down to him, and then to make matters even more unbelievable, he speaks to him with warm affection. The man chasing him into the wilderness, the man who has been marked by corruption, envy, murder, wickedness, and rebellion against God, David comes out and says, I will not be the one who lifts my hand against you. And then he calls Saul my father. So we have repentance, more than just kind of a, a quiet repentance in a corner. We have a, a declaration of, of a kind of loyalty or honor to the office and affection. 
This is a lot. (laughs) This isn't David just doing the right thing. This is David who did a little bit of a bad thing in the face of the opportunity to do something that many would say, he, he would have, in fact, many were saying, that you have justification to do. He doesn't do it. Feels guilty for just tearing the robe. He repents, rebukes the men who are leading him or um, coaxing him into doing something more evil and dishonorable. And then he goes before the most, uh, the, the dishonorable one in First Samuel. Falls down on his face, humbles himself before him, honors him, honors his office, his role, his anointing by God into the, the place of authority he's been given and then calls him my father. But it doesn't stop there. In calling him his father, he then shows us what it looks like to repent, show honor, to show affection, and to call for repentance. To, to show love and to declare and to warn of the coming of the judgment of God. Now, the text puts these two things together, and they're two things that that I believe Christians in America have completely forgotten how to put together. Listen, verse 12. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients says, "Out out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. And then this wonderful turn of phrase in verse 14. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? Um, Now some people have interpreted these next phrases uh, simply to mean um, I'm nobody. Why are you wasting your time on me? Um, uh, Other commentators point to, and I actually think this is correct, um, it's more of a statement of strength. It's like who do you think I am? Like a dead dog? Like a flea? Like I just had the opportunity to kill you. That, in the context, I think makes more sense. Um, He's turned from kneeling. He's turned from affection and honor. And now he's declaring, um, he's calling down the judgment of God on Saul. He's calling down God to come and judge between the two of them. He's calling down God to seek out vengeance, that God would bring vengeance on Saul. And he says to Saul, who do you think I am as you pursue me? Am I just a dead dog? Have you forgotten about Goliath? Have you forgotten about the numerous victories I brought? Have you forgotten about the song they sing, which must drive you crazy? Saul has killed his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. Verse 15, may the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you. And see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. The response of Saul to this is to weep to at least give some semblance of at least a temporary sort of repentance, matching David's affection with my son. As he calls to David, finally recognizing perhaps now for a moment, unblinded from his own envy, remembering his past relationship with David, calling him my son, acknowledging that before the Lord, David is right and he is wrong. That David has not done evil, has not repaid Saul for evil, even as he sought to do evil. And then this glorious confession comes. I know, verse 20, I know that you shall surely be king 
and the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. So he confesses, I know this is going to come. He's actually known all along. This isn't like a new revelation for him. It's actually why he's been trying to kill David. And then asks that David would not execute vengeance against Saul's family when he comes to his throne. So that's the story. David doesn't go with Saul. He doesn't, everything's not just hunky-dory. David doesn't go, oh, great. We're all restored now. I trust Saul completely. I'm going to go back to playing the harp in his court. Um, David, it says, goes back to his stronghold. Saul goes back home. What should we learn with this, from this? We have Saul pursuing David. David, an opportunity to kill Saul, repenting of what seems to me to be a small evil, and then going beyond that to honor Saul, to show affection to Saul, and then, jarringly, right next to it, to call upon God to judge Saul, to avenge David against Saul. See, three things I want to call us to observe and obey. There is, um, in this, in, in chapters 24 through 26, the, the phrase good and evil occurs about one-third of the times that it occurs in all of First and Second Samuel. First, the, the phrase good and evil um, occurs 81 times uh, in First Samuel alone, and about one-third of those happens um, in these three chapters. In other words, um, there's something going on about showing um, the tension, the, the, um, the, the, the antithesis, the conflict that exists between good and evil. Uh, We live in a world in which we should be, in the light of God's grace, trusting in God's word, as we grow in our ability to see and discern and understand the world around us, consistently, regularly confronted with um, the evil by which we are surrounded. There is evil everywhere. As you consider the history of the church, as you consider um, the, the, the nature of just how history has unfolded and the church's life in the world, what you will find, if you're honest, is seasons of relative, um, re- sorry, relative uh, unease and yet people getting along, marked by um, uh, open warfare against the saints and against the people of God. What you'll find in our own history is uh, a history of kind of slowly building animosity towards um, the, the word of God and the righteousness of God and the faithfulness of God. So how do we live in the face of evil? How do we live in the face of an evil that's not just content to live in a corner, but eventually goes out into the desert to kill God's people, to, to attack righteousness itself? How do we live in a day and age in which the, the glory of just manhood and womanhood are attacked where you buy groceries? How do we live in a day and age in which the the glory and the beauty of marriage is undermined? How do we live faithfully in a moment when when, um, the highest offices in our land seem to be at war with everything that is good and true and beautiful and all that God has said, such that just believing what millions and millions of Christians from all over the world have have believed and confessed and practiced for 2,000 years is considered bigoted or wicked or antithetical to the flourishing of society. How do you live in that precise place? And there's two temptations, and there are always only two temptations. 
And they have always existed for the people of God. They're all over the Bible, and they're right here in this text. On the one hand, when you find yourself confronted with darkness, with wickedness, with evil, one is to take up your sword and pursue revolution, to fight as the world fights, to kill Saul in the cave. That's not, I think, our particular temptation in this moment. Most of us have grown up in or been around, and there's a number of you who haven't come from the church, maybe you're just visiting here, welcome. But a lot of you have grown up in churches and an evangelical church in our day that has been really, really cozy with and at peace with things that it should not have ever been at peace with. Just trying to maintain the sense of prosperity, maintain the sense of approval, Not to appear too out of step or too out of line with those that would deny the authority of God and the goodness of God and the centrality of God and the justice of his law. And the temptation in this moment is not suddenly to to go to war, not suddenly to to freak out and start killing people in the streets. No, no, the temptation in this particular moment um, instead is how can I keep my head down? How um, how, How can I just do the first part of this text. Hey, we're not against you. We're not trying to kill you. We love you. And so the temptations are to take what David puts together and to tear them asunder. On the one hand, to simply fall on our face, to declare our love, to honor those um, whose offices are worthy of honor and yet whose behavior and attitudes and beliefs are not worthy of honor, to simply honor it and keep our head down. On the other hand, the temptation is simply to to bring down and to call down the vengeance of God, the wrath of God, and the judgment of God upon the world around us. But, But the text doesn't allow either of those to exist on their own, does it? You see, God has called us into a place in this particular moment. In fact, it's the same moment over and over and over again. It just looks slightly different in different contexts. I was reading this week about the persecution of Christians in Romania and, and their faithfulness. It's really started around 1945, didn't end until 1989. Some of the most horrific persecution in the history of the church. And what you have is, is faithful men and women imprisoned, tortured, many of them killed in chains, refusing to spit and hate and mock And at the exact same moment, expressing love and affection for the very people persecuting them. And in the very next sentence, declaring to them that the judgment of God is coming. And that vengeance is the Lord's. Now, nobody here is in chains, or you wouldn't be here. Although, you could be here, but it'd be weird. Nobody here is being tortured, I don't think. But we're called to that exact same place. A place that refuses, refuses to spit in the face of our neighbors, refuses to declare dishonorable things over people, refuses to tear their robes, even showing honor where we can, and to declare the judgment of God is coming. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. And that is a 
horrible place to live and exactly the place that God has called us to be and to live everywhere that we are. It's horrible because there's no resolution. You're never at peace. You're always in the tension between showing honor to those whom it is difficult to show honor, even if they're trying to kill you, and not being able to just keep your head down and not name sin, but right there in the midst of showing honor, declaring to them, The reality of their own evil, their own sin, and the fact that the judgment of God is sure. It's promised. It's the first, and I think the most significant thing that we're to see here in this text. And two, I think we should notice David's been promised something. It's been promised by God that he will be the king of Israel. And for the short-sighted, for the fact his men who were very short-sighted, here was his opportunity to seize what God had promised. And he refuses to do so. And there is a temptation to try to make happen in this life um, uh, what you know God has promised you, to try to seize it, to take it, to make it yours. Um, and, and I think this shows up in a whole bunch of different ways. I'm trying to think the most practical way. Um, I'll say it shows up in marriage counseling a lot. You have in your mind what what a godly husband or a godly wife looks like. Rather than faithfully waiting on the Lord, seeking to be obedient to the Lord, seeking to honor the Lord, and then fulfill um, whatever office and role you've been given in that marriage, either a husband or a wife, um, to do that honorably, to do that in a way that honors the Lord, um, you try to find ways to seize or to make the other person what you want them to be. Just as a warning, if you're not married yet, there is nothing more miserable than a marriage where both people are trying to make the other person be what they think they ought to be. It gets really gross in marriage counseling. Rather than waiting on the Lord, praying, seeking the Lord, faithfully at times, naming evil, um, uh, declaring the authority of God over all other authorities, we try to take or seize what God has promised, but he's also provided for us to wait for. Don't seize what God has promised. If he's promised it, there's no need to seize it. And if he hasn't promised it, it'll do you no good to try to grab it. Wait for the Lord. Humble yourself before the God of all the earth. Count his promises. Wait on his promises. Last thing I want us to see in this text. You'll notice David's confession and his repentance. David could have stayed in the cave. But the kind of confession of sin that's going on here is it's mind-boggling. Here's a man committing genocide against entire towns and cities. A man belittling the very office that God had placed him in, um, refusing to acknowledge the authority of God over his own authority. In other words, here's Saul making himself God and doing so in such a way that's murdering and killing and, and, and doing everything that Samuel promised would happen um, when a king actually became tyrannical over the land. He's doing all of it. David tore his robe. Like, weigh that out, right? Like it's... It's if you cut me off in traffic and we pulled over and I punched you in the face. 
Like, which one's worse? That wasn't a great example. Sorry. <laughs> My wife just looked at me like, well. <laughs> but, but here's as evil as you can get. And I refrain from doing what could even be conceived as a justifiably and necessary bad thing. But I didn't do that. Instead of doing that, just cut off the corner of every row. Husbands and wives, apply it to roommates, apply it to friends, apply it to your relationship with your children. Have you ever been in that place where, like, they did something wrong? Like, really, really wrong. Like, way more wrong than you did. Just remember a situation like that. And then you responded in a way that was just a little bit wrong. Like, you may be a little too harsh in your response or quippy. I want to use the word quippy. A little too snappy. A little too harsh. A little too self-righteous. But, I mean, you just, you said like a phrase you shouldn't have said, but it really wasn't that bad. It was just, maybe just a little bit over the line. And they did this. Like, did you, like, see what they did? And yet God calls you. He calls you not just to kind of stay in the cave and be quiet. He calls you to go out and bow your head to the ground and confess your sin. The kind of repentance that God commands of us is devastating. The only way to liberation. To stand in the face of a man like Saul when all you did is cut his robe. To go out and publicly in front of the men you are leading and bow your face to the ground and call him my father. How free do you have to be in that moment? Who's to say that Saul won't immediately turn, send all 3,000 men to kill David and kill all his men? David doesn't know, but David, trusting in the mercy of God, goes and humbles himself in the face of his own sin. As small as it may have been, particularly when compared in the face of the largeness and the weight of Saul's own sin. Oh, that we would be a people that, that race to repent of our sin, that are quick to humble ourselves. Husbands, may you be the kinds of husbands and fathers that even in the face of sin, your kid does something insane and you lose it for just a second, um, that you wouldn't Um, You you wouldn't second-guess yourself. You would humble yourself before the Lord and confess your sins in humility. You wouldn't sit around waiting for your wife to figure out all the bad things she's doing, but rather you would humble yourself before the Lord and confess your sins. That in the face of the whatever evil may be being done by your coworker or your neighbor, when you've sinned, when you've lacked integrity, when you've been too harsh, um, when you've been loveless, you would humble yourself before the God of all the earth and confess your sins and show honor. Christ did not kill his enemies in a cave, but died at their hands, waiting on the promises of God. He humbled himself before the God of all the earth, And he was raised and he was exalted to the right hand of the Father where he sits reigning now. One of the most beautiful things about this text, if David tries to carry out or seize 
promises of God to him in this moment. He likely starts an unending civil war that tears Israel apart. He ascends the the throne and keeps a united Israel precisely because he doesn't seize things that God had not yet given him, but humbles himself before the Lord, humbles himself even before Saul and Saul's office, and faithfully declares the promises of God to judge wickedness and evil. Let's pray and then prepare for communion.